Chapter Ten of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Grey. Chapter Ten, Love. During all these waiting days, Venters, with the exception of the afternoon when he had built the gate in the gorge, had scarcely gone out of sight of camp, and never out of hearing. His desire to explore Surprise Valley was keen, and on the morning after his long talk with the girl, he took his rifle and, calling Ring, made a move to start. The girl lay back in a rude chair of boughs he had put together for her. She had been watching him, and when he picked up the gun and called the dog, Venters thought she gave a nervous start. "'I'm only going to look over the valley,' he said. "'Will you be gone long?' "'No,' he replied, and started off. The incident set him thinking of his former impression that, after her recovery from fever, she did not seem at ease unless he was close at hand. It was fear of being alone— due, he concluded, most likely to her weakened condition. He must not leave her much alone. As he strode down the sloping terrace, rabbits scampered before him, and the beautiful valley quail, as purple in color as the sage on the uplands, ran fleetly along the ground into the forest. It was pleasant under the trees, in the gold-flecked shade, with the whistle of quail and twittering of birds everywhere. Soon he had passed the limit of his former excursions and entered new territory. Here the woods began to show open glades and brooks running down from the slope, and presently he emerged from shade into the sunshine of a meadow. The shaking of the high grass told him of the running of animals, what species he could not tell. But from Ring's manifest desire to have a chase, they were evidently some kind wilder than rabbits. Venters approached the willow and cottonwood belt that he had observed from the height of slope. He penetrated it to find a considerable stream of water in great half-submerged mounds of brush and sticks, and all about him were old and new gnawed circles at the base of the cottonwoods. "'Beaver!' he exclaimed. "'By all that's lucky, the meadow's full of beaver. How did they ever get here?' Beaver had not found a way into the valley by the trail of the cliff-dwellers, of that he was certain, and he began to have more than curiosity as to the outlet or inlet of the stream. When he passed some dead water, which he noted was held by a beaver dam, there was a current in the stream, and it flowed west. Following its course, he soon entered the oak forest again, and passed through to find himself before massed and jumbled ruins of cliff-wall. There were tangled thickets of wild plum-trees and other thorny growths that made passage extremely laborsome. He found innumerable tracks of wildcats and foxes. Rustlings in the thick undergrowth told him of stealthy movements of these animals. At length his further advance appeared futile, for the reason that the stream disappeared in a split at the base of immense rocks over which he could not climb. To his relief, he concluded that though beaver might work their way up the narrow chasm where the water rushed, it would be impossible for men to enter the valley there. This western curve was the only part of the valley where the walls had been split asunder, and it was a wildly rough and inaccessible corner. Going back a little way, he leaped the stream and headed toward the southern wall. Once out of the oaks, he found again the low terrace of aspens, and above that the wide, open terrace fringed by silver spruces. 
This side of the valley contained the wind or water-worn caves. As he pressed on, keeping to the upper terrace, cave after cave opened out of the cliff, now a large one, now a small one. Then yawned, quite suddenly and wonderfully above him, the great cavern of the cliff-dwellers. It was still a goodly distance, and he tried to imagine, if it appeared so huge from where he stood, what it would be when he got there. He climbed the terrace, and then faced a long, gradual ascent of weathered rock and dust, which made climbing too difficult for attention to anything else. At length he entered a zone of shade, and looked up. He stood just within the hollow of a cavern so immense that he had no conception of its real dimensions. The curved roof, stained by ages of leakage, with buff and black and rust-colored streaks, swept up and loomed higher, and seemed to soar to the rim of the cliff. Here again was a magnificent arch, such as formed the grand gateway to the valley, only in this instance it formed the dome of a cave instead of the span of a bridge. Venters passed onward and upward. The stones he dislodged rolled down with strange, hollow crack and roar. He had climbed a hundred rods inward, and yet he had not reached the base of the shelf where the cliff-dwellings rested, a long half-circle of connected stone house, with little dark holes that he had fancied were eyes. At length he gained the base of the shelf, and here found steps cut in the rock. These facilitated climbing, and as he went up he thought how easily this vanished race of men might once have held that stronghold against an army. There was only one possible place to ascend— and this was narrow and steep. Venters had visited cliff-dwellings before, and they had been in ruins, and of no great character or size, but this place was of proportions that stunned him, and it had not been desecrated by the hand of man, nor had it been crumbled by the hand of time. It was a stupendous tomb. It had been a city. It was just as it had been left by its builders. The little houses were there, the smoke-blackened stains of fires, the pieces of pottery scattered about cold hearths, the stone hatchets, and stone pestles and mealing-stones lay beside round holes polished by years of grinding maize, lay there as if they had been carelessly dropped yesterday. But the cliff-dwellers were gone. Dust. They were dust on the floor or at the foot of the shelf, and their habitations and utensils endured. Venters felt the sublimity of that marvellous vaulted arch, and it seemed to gleam with a glory of something that was gone. How many years had passed since the cliff-dwellers gazed out across the beautiful valley, as he was gazing now? How long had it been since women ground grain in those polished holes? What time had rolled by since men of an unknown race lived, loved, fought, and died there? Had an enemy destroyed them? Had disease destroyed them, or only that greatest destroyer, time? Venters saw a long line of blood-red hands painted low down upon the yellow roof of stone. Here was strange portent, if not an answer to his queries. The place oppressed him. It was light, but full of a transparent gloom. It smelled of dust and musty stone, of age and disuse. It was sad. It was solemn. It had the look of a place where silence had become master, and was now irrevocable and terrible, and could not be broken. Yet, at the moment, from high up in the carved crevices of the arch, floated down the low, strange wail of wind, a knell indeed for all that had gone. 
Venters, sighing, gathered up an armful of pottery, such pieces as he thought strong enough and suitable for his own use, and bent his steps toward camp. He mounted the terrace at an opposite point to which he had left. He saw the girl looking in the direction which he had gone. His footsteps made no sound in the deep grass, and he approached close without her being aware of his presence. Whitey lay on the ground near where she sat, and he manifested the usual actions of welcome, but the girl did not notice them. She seemed to be oblivious to everything near at hand. She made a pathetic figure drooping there, with her sunny hair contrasting so markedly with her white, wasted cheeks, and her hands listlessly clasped, and her little bare feet propped in the framework of the rude seat. Venters could have sworn and laughed in one breath at the idea of the connection between this girl and Oldring's masked rider. She was the victim of more than accident of fate, a victim to some deep plot, the mystery of which burned him. As he stepped forward with a half-formed thought that she was absorbed in watching for his return, she turned her head and saw him. A swift start, a change rather than rush of blood under her white cheeks, a flashing of big eyes that fixed their glance upon him, transformed her face in that single instant of turning, and he knew she had been watching for him, that his return was the one thing in her mind. She did not smile, she did not flush, she did not look glad. All these would have meant little compared to her indefinite expression. Venters grasped the peculiar, vivid, vital something that leaped from her face. It was as if she had been in a dead, hopeless clamp of inaction and feeling, and had been suddenly shot through and through with quivering animation. Almost it was as if she had returned to life. And Venters thought with lightning swiftness, I've saved her. I've unlinked her from that old life. She was watching as if I were all she had left on earth. She belongs to me. The thought was startlingly new. Like a blow it was in an unprepared moment. The cheery salutation he had ready for her died unborn, and he tumbled the pieces of pottery awkwardly on the grass, while some unfamiliar, deep-seated emotion, mixed with pity and glad assurance of his power to succor her, held him dumb. "'What a load you had,' she said. "'Why, they're pots and crocks. Where did you get them?' Venters laid down his rifle, and, filling one of the pots from his canteen, he placed it on the smoldering campfire. "'Hope it'll hold water,' he said, presently. "'Why, there's an enormous cliff-dwelling just across here. I got the pottery there. Don't you think we needed something? That tin cup of mine has served to make tea, broth, soup, everything.' <laughs> "'I noticed we hadn't a great deal to cook in.' She laughed. It was the first time— he liked that laugh, and though he was tempted to look at her, he did not want to show his surprise or his pleasure. "'Will you take me over there and all around in the valley pretty soon when I'm well?' she added. "'Indeed I shall. It's a wonderful place. Rabbits so thick you can't step without kicking one out. And quail, beaver, foxes, wildcats. We're in a regular den. But haven't you ever seen a cliff-dwelling?' "'No, I've heard about them, though. The, "'The men say the pass is full of old houses and ruins. "'Why, I should think you'd have run across one "'in all your riding around,' said Venters. 
He spoke slowly, choosing his words carefully, and he essayed a perfectly casual manner, and pretended to be busy assorting pieces of pottery. She must have no cause again to suffer shame for curiosity of his. Yet never in all his days had he been so eager to hear the details of any one's life. "'When I rode, I rode like the wind,' she replied, "'and never had time to stop for anything.' I remember that day I, I met you in the pass. How dusty you were! How tired your horse looked! Were you always riding? Oh, no, sometimes not for months, when I was shut up in the cabin. Venters tried to subdue a hot tingling. You were shut up then? he asked carelessly. When Aldring went away on his long trips, he was gone for months sometimes. He shut me up in the cabin. What for? perhaps to keep me from running away. I always threatened that. Mostly, though, because the men got drunk at the villages. But they were always good to me. I wasn't afraid. A prisoner? That must have been hard on you. I liked that. As long as I can remember, I've been locked up there at times, and those times were the only happy ones I ever had. It's a big cabin, high up on a cliff, and I could look out. Then I had dogs and pets I had tamed, and books. There was a spring inside, and food stored, and the men brought me fresh meat. Once I was there one whole winter. It now required deliberation on Venter's part to persist in his unconcern and to keep at work. He wanted to look at her, to volley questions at her. "'As long as you can remember you've lived in Deception Pass,' he went on. "'I've a dim memory of some other place, and women and children, but I can't make anything of it.' Sometimes I think till I'm weary. Then you can read? You have books? Oh, yes, I can read and write, too, pretty well. Oldring is educated. He taught me, and years ago an old rustler lived with us, and he had been something different once. He was always teaching me. So Oldring takes long trips, mused Venters. Do you know where he goes? No, every year he drives cattle north of Stirling then does not return for months. I heard him accused once of living two lives, and he killed the man. That was at Stone Bridge. Venters dropped his apparent task and looked up with an eagerness he no longer strove to hide. Bess, he said, using her name for the first time. I suspected Oldring was something besides a rustler. Tell me, what's his purpose here in the pass? I believe much that he has done was to hide his real work here. "'You're right. He's more than a rustler. "'In fact, as the men say, his rustling cattle is now only a bluff. "'There's gold in the canyons.' "'Ah!' "'Yes, there's gold. Not in great quantities, but gold enough for him and his men. "'They wash for gold week in and week out. "'Then they drive a few cattle and go into the villages to drink and shoot and kill, "'to bluff the riders.' drive a few cattle. But Bess, the Witherstein herd, the red herd, twenty-five hundred head. That's not a few. And I tracked them into a valley near here. Oldring never stole the red herd. He made a deal with Mormons. The riders were to be called in, and Oldring was to drive the herd and keep it till a certain time. I won't know when. Then drive it back to the range. What his share was, I didn't hear. Did you hear why that deal was made? queried Venters. No, but it was a trick of Mormons. They are full of tricks. I've heard Oldring's men tell about Mormons. 
Maybe the Witherstein woman wasn't minding her halter. I saw the man who made the deal. He was a little queer-shaped man, all humped up. He sat his horse well. I heard one of our men say afterward there was no better rider on the sage than this fellow. What was the name? I forget. Jerry Card? suggested Venters. That's it. I remember. It's a name easy to remember. And Jerry Card appeared to be on fair terms with Oldring's men. I shouldn't wonder, replied Venters thoughtfully. Verification of his suspicions in regard to Tull's underhand work, for the deal with Oldring made by Jerry Card assuredly had its inception in the Mormon elder's brain, and had been accomplished through his orders, revived in Venters a memory of hatred that had been smothered by press of other emotions. Only a few days had elapsed since the hour of his encounter with Tull, yet they had been forgotten and now seemed far off and the interval one that now appeared large and profound with incalculable change in his feelings. Hatred of Tull still existed in his heart, but it had lost its white heat. His affection for Jane Witherstein had not changed in the least. Nevertheless, he seemed to view it from another angle, and see it as another thing, what he could not exactly define. The recalling of these two feelings was to Venters like getting glimpses into a self that was gone, and the wonder of them, perhaps the change which was too elusive for him, was the fact that a strange irritation accompanied the memory and a desire to dismiss it from mind. And straightway he did dismiss it, to return to thoughts of his significant present. "'Bess, tell me one more thing,' he said. "'Haven't you known any women, any young people?' "'Sometimes there were women with the men, but Aldring never let me know them.' and all the young people I ever saw in my life was when I rode fast through the villages. Perhaps that was the most puzzling and thought-provoking thing she had yet said to Venters. He pondered, more curious the more he learned, but he curbed his inquisitive desires, for he saw her shrinking on the verge of that shame, the causing of which had occasioned him such self-reproach. He would ask no more. Still, he had to think, and he found it difficult to think clearly. This sad-eyed girl was so utterly different from what it would have been reason to believe such a remarkable life would have made her. On this day he had found her simple and frank, as natural as any girl he had ever known. About her there was something sweet. Her voice was low and well modulated. He could not look into her face, meet her steady, unabashed yet wistful eyes, and think of her as the woman she had confessed herself. Aldring's masked rider sat before him, a girl dressed as a man. She had been made to ride at the head of infamous forays and drives. She had been imprisoned for many months of her life in an obscure cabin. At times the most vicious of men had been her companions, and the vilest of women, if they had not been permitted to approach her, had, at least, cast their shadows over her. But, but in spite of all this, there thundered at Venters some truth that lifted its voice higher than the clamoring facts of dishonor, some truth that was the very life of her beautiful eyes, and it was innocence. In the days that followed, Venters balanced perpetually in mind this haunting conception of innocence over against the cold and sickening fact of an unintentional yet actual gift. How could it be possible for the two things to be true? He believed the latter to be true, and he would not relinquish his conviction of the former, and these conflicting thoughts augmented the mystery that appeared to be a part of Bess. In those ensuing days, however, it became clear as clearest light that Bess was rapidly regaining strength, that, unless reminded of her long association with Aldring, she seemed to have forgotten it, 
that, like an Indian who lived solely from moment to moment, she was utterly absorbed in the present. Day by day Venters watched the white of her face slowly change to brown, and the wasted cheeks fill out by imperceptible degrees. There came a time when he could just trace the line of demarcation between the part of her face once hidden by a mask and that left exposed to wind and sun. When that line disappeared in clear bronze tan, it was as if she had been washed clean of the stigma of Oldring's masked rider. The suggestion of the mask always made Venters remember. Now that it was gone, he seldom thought of her past. Occasionally he tried to piece together the several stages of strange experience and to make a whole. He had shot a masked outlaw the very sight of whom had been ill-omened to riders. He had carried off a wounded woman whose bloody lips quivered in prayer. He had nursed what seemed a frail, shrunken boy. And now he watched a girl whose face had become strangely sweet, whose dark blue eyes were ever upon him without boldness, without shyness, but with a steady, grave, and growing light. Many times Venters found the clear gaze embarrassing to him, yet, like wine, it had an exhilarating effect. What did she think when she looked at him so? Almost he believed she had no thought at all. All about her and the present there in Surprise Valley, and the dim yet subtly impending future, fascinated Venters and made him thoughtful, as all his lonely vigils in the sage had not. Chiefly it was the present that he wished to dwell upon, but it was the call of the future which stirred him to action. No idea had he of what that future had in store for Bess and him. He began to think of improving Surprise Valley as a place to live in, for there was no telling how long they would be compelled to stay there. Venters stubbornly resisted the entering into his mind of an insistent thought that, clearly realized, might have made it plain to him that he did not want to leave Surprise Valley at all. But it was imperative that he consider practical matters, and whether or not he was destined to stay long there, he felt the immediate need of a change of diet. It would be necessary for him to go farther afield for a variety of meat, and also that he soon visit Cottonwoods for a supply of food. It occurred again to Venters that he could go to the canyon where Oldring kept his cattle, and at little risk he could pack out some beef. He wished to do this, however, without letting Bess know of it, till after he had made the trip. Presently he hit upon the plan of going while she was asleep. That very night he stole out of camp, climbed up under the stone bridge, and entered the outlet to the pass. The gorge was full of luminous gloom. Balancing rock loomed dark and leaned over the pale descent. Transformed in the shadowy light, it took shape and dimensions of a spectral god waiting, waiting for the moment to hurl himself down upon the tottering walls and close forever the outlet to Deception Pass. At night, more than by day, Venters felt something fearful and fateful in that rock, and that it had leaned and waited through a thousand years to have somehow to deal with his destiny. "'Old man, if you must roll, wait till I get back to the girl, and then roll,' he said aloud, as if the stones were indeed a god. And those spoken words, in their grim note to his ear, as well as contents to his mind, told Venters that he was all but drifting on a current which he had not power nor wish to stem. Venters exercised his usual care in the matter of hiding tracks from the outlet, yet it took him scarcely an hour to reach Old Ring's cattle. Here sight of many calves changed his original intention, and instead of packing out meat, he decided to take a calf out alive. He roped one, securely tied its feet, and swung it over his shoulder. 
Here was an exceedingly heavy burden, but Venters was powerful. He could take up a sack of grain, and with ease pitch it over a pack-saddle, and he made long distance without resting. The hardest work came in the climb up to the outlet and on through to the valley. When he had accomplished it, he became fired with another idea that again changed his intention. He would not kill the calf, but keep it alive. He would go back to Old Ring's herd and pack out more calves. Thereupon he secured the calf in the best available spot for the moment, and turned to make a second trip. When Venters got back to the valley with another calf, it was close upon daybreak. He crawled into his cave and slept late. Bess had no inkling that he had been absent from camp nearly all night, and only remarked solicitously that he appeared to be more tired than usual, and more in the need of sleep. In the afternoon Venters built a gate across a small ravine near camp, and here corralled the calves, and he succeeded in completing his task without Bess being any the wiser. That night he made two more trips to Old Ring's Range, and again on the following night, and yet another on the next. With eight calves in his corral he concluded that he had enough, but it dawned upon him then that he did not want to kill one. "'I've rustled Old Ring's cattle,' he said, and laughed. He noted then that all the calves were red. "'Red!' he exclaimed. "'From the red herd I've stolen Jane Witherstein's cattle. That's about the strangest thing yet.' One more trip he undertook to Old Ring's Valley, and this time he roped a yearling steer and killed it and cut out a small quarter of beef. The howling of coyotes told him he need have no apprehension that the work of his knife would be discovered. He packed the beef back to camp and hung it upon a spruce tree. Then he sought his bed. On the morrow he was up bright and early, glad that he had a surprise for Bess. He could hardly wait for her to come out. Presently she appeared and walked under the spruce. Then she approached the campfire. There was a tinge of healthy red in the bronze of her cheeks, and her slender form had begun to round out in graceful lines. "'Bess, didn't you say you were tired of rabbit?' inquired Venters. "'And quail and beaver?' "'Indeed, I did.' "'What would you like?' "'I'm tired of meat, but if we have to live on it, I'd like some beef.' "'Well, how does that strike you?' Venters pointed to the quarter hanging from the spruce tree. "'We'll have fresh beef for a few days, and then we'll cut the rest into strips and dry it.' "'Where did you get that?' asked Bess, slowly. "'I stole that from Oldring.' "'You went back to the canyon. You risked—' While she hesitated, the tinge of bloom faded out of her cheeks. "'It wasn't any risk, but it was hard work.' "'I'm sorry I said I was tired of rabbit.' "'Why? How? When did you get that beef?' "'Last night.' "'While I was asleep?' "'Yes.' "'I woke last night sometime, but I didn't know.' Her eyes were widening, darkening with thought, and whenever they did so the steady, watchful, seeing gaze gave place to the wistful light. In the former she saw as the primitive woman without thought, in the latter she looked inward, and her gaze was the reflection of a troubled mind.' For long Venters had not seen that dark change, that deepening of blue, which he thought was beautiful and sad. But now he wanted to make her think. "'I've done more than pack in that beef,' he said. "'For five nights I've been working while you slept. I've got eight calves corralled near a ravine. Eight calves, all alive and doing fine. "'You went five nights.' All that Venters could make of the dilation of her eyes, her slow pallor, and her exclamation was fear, 
fear for herself or for him. Yes, I didn't tell you because I knew you were afraid to be left alone. Alone? She echoed his word, but the meaning of it was nothing to her. She had not even thought of being left alone. It was not then fear for herself, but for him. This girl, always slow of speech and action, now seemed almost stupid. She put forth a hand that might have indicated the groping of her mind. Suddenly she stepped swiftly to him, with a look and touch that drove from him any doubt of her quick intelligence or feeling. Aldring has men watch the herds. They would kill you. You must never go again. When she had spoken, the strength and the blaze of her died, and she swayed toward Venters. "'Bess, I'll not go again,' he said, catching her. She leaned against him, and her body was limp and vibrated to a long, wavering tremble. Her face was upturned to his. Woman's face, woman's eyes, woman's lips, all acutely and blindly and sweetly and terribly truthful in their betrayal. But as her fear was instinctive, so was her clinging to this one and only friend. Venters gently put her from him and steadied her upon her feet, and all the while his blood raced wild, and a thrilling tingle unsteadied his nerve, and something that he had seen and felt in her that he could not understand seemed very close to him, warm and rich as a fragrant breath, sweet as nothing had ever before been sweet to him. With all his will Venters strove for calmness and thought and judgment unbiased by pity, and reality unswayed by sentiment. Bess's eyes were still fixed upon him with all her soul bright in that wistful light. Swiftly, resolutely, he put out of mind all of her life except what had been spent with him. He scorned himself for the intelligence that made him still doubt. He meant to judge her as she had judged him. He was face to face with the inevitableness of life itself. He saw destiny in the dark, straight path of her wonderful eyes. Here was the simplicity, the sweetness of a girl contending with new and strange and enthralling emotions, here the living truth of innocence, here the blind terror of a woman confronted with the thought of death to her savior and protector. All this Venters saw, but, besides, there was in Bess's eyes a slow dawning consciousness that seemed about to break out in glorious radiance. "'Bess, are you thinking?' he asked. "'Yes. Oh, yes. "'Do you realize we are here alone, man and woman?' "'Yes. "'Have you thought that we may make our way out to civilization, "'or we may have to stay here, alone, hidden from the world, all our lives?' "'I never thought, till now.' "'Well, what's your choice, to go or to stay here, alone with me?' "'Stay!' Newborn thought of self, ringing vibrantly in her voice, gave her answer singular power. Venters trembled, and then swiftly turned his gaze from her face, from her eyes. He knew what she had only half divined, that she loved him. End of chapter 10